Thanks, Chris. And welcome again, everyone. Somebody remind me to put that translation line up on the slides for next week, okay? I want texts and emails from everyone on that. So it's exciting today because we're jumping into a new book. We're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We are going to be in the letter to the Hebrews. But today I thought maybe instead of jumping right in, we would have an introduction to the book because it's just so rich, uh, not only with theology, but also with practical application to the church. And so I figured our text, since it was going to be the introduction to the book, the most appropriate text would be from the last chapter of the book. I don't know about you, but I always like to peek at the last few chapters of a book, sort of see where it's heading. I know that sort of lets the cat out of the bag, but that's the the type of thing. I like to know where I'm going, and it sort of gives me an idea throughout the whole entire journey of what the context is. And so most important for everyone here to know as we go through the book of Hebrews is what is the purpose of this book? Because it is so rich theologically that we can get veered off and get immersed and even go on theological rabbit trails. But we're going to do our best to hit all the good theological themes. But hopefully and most importantly, we want to see what does this have to do with us today and what can we take it uh, take from it. So we're going to start in Hebrews 13 verses 22. That's going to be our verse for today. And it says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Bear with this word of exhortation. A few more verses, the book is over. And this tells us, and as we'll see throughout the book, that the book of Hebrews is an exhortation. It's a admonition. It's a warning. But not just to anybody, it's, it's to the, a specific admonition and warning to a specific community of believers during that first century. Now, what was the problem with this, with this group of people? I don't know about you, but one of the main things that, we, <clears throat> that I do on a regular basis being uh, in the world is I'm always trying to avoid being misguided. Whether it be from TV advertisements or advertisements on my phone or emails or texts that I get, the main question in my mind is, is why are they calling me or texting me asking me to give them my bank information or whatever? Is this really the case? Being misguided is ingrained in our, in our mind because this world is a world unfortunately, of deception. We have the same thing with our children. Are our children being guided correctly? Regardless of how old they are, especially if you have younger children, what are they learning in school? Are they being taught the truth? Is someone trying to sneak in a little bit of poison in that good, nice glass of orange juice? You know, they say that rat poison is 99% good food. 1% is what kills the rat. And then, of course, we have to continually be on guard for our own deception of ourselves. Self-deception. Is there anything worse than believing something that's untrue about yourself? 
It's, it's something that can happen. The Bible talks about that as well. But there's nothing worse out of all the things I just mentioned than being misguided about the idea of who God truly is. Being misguided on your perception of God. Now, this is a life and death situation. <clears throat> now, this happens naturally to the unregenerate person. Somebody that is no idea, they, they don't want nothing to do with God. Chances are, if you talk to those people, they don't have a very good biblical grasp of who God is. They'll have their different theories and, and those sort of things. But then when we become born from above, when God makes us into a new creature, we still have these traces of our old life that hang around. The Bible says we're going to be battling the flesh our whole entire life. There's going to be a fight. You got two dogs in you. The dog of the flesh and the dog of the spirit. And whatever one you feed the most is going to win. And so we have this constant battle, even as believers, to not be deceived. To not be deceived by angels of light, by partial truths. And it could happen even as we desire to go close to the Lord. I know for myself, I get so caught up in the minutia of life, even so caught up in the small details of ministry, that sometimes I forget about what this is all about. And that is Jesus Christ. Paul gave a warning to the Corinthians. He said, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray, listen, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. See, it's not, a, it's not a complicated thing. It's the simplicity and the purity of ultimate devotion to Christ, not just in our life and things theological, but over all aspects of the totality of our being, the simplicity of Christ is that foundation, must be that foundation. Jesus tells the church of Ephesus, in Revelation 2.4, he says, you've left your first love. That first love, so simple, so passionate, so clear. We've, we've, we've polluted it. And then he says, remember where you have fallen from. And repent. Turn around. Go back and do the deeds that you used to be doing. Or otherwise, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. Speaking of that church of Ephesus, he's going to take that church out. It's not being a light. It's a covered lamp. It's a lamp covering that light on the hill. It's purposeless. Now, this is what was happening to the community in this book. It's, it's, it's addressed to the Hebrews. Now, oftentimes we just get in our mind that, oh, it must have just been a bunch of people in a synagogue that got converted to Christ. Well, just so you could remember, in the early church, all of them were Hebrews, pretty much. Everybody was coming from that Jewish background. The gospel went to the Jews first. So this was very, they were interspersed together. They, there wasn't a Gentile church and a Jewish church. That's really most of the letters of Paul. 
trying to tell the every every one of the the church um, of Ephesus, the Colossians, Philippians, you guys need to be united as one. Even in Romans, the big picture is unity. Not two churches, not a Jewish church and a Christian church, but one church united in Christ. So the writer throughout this whole book is giving an exhortation to these people to get back to this simplicity of Jesus Christ. Get back to the purity of devotion to him alone. And so a few technical details. One is the big question of, well, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And this has been a debate from the very, very early church. You have Augustine has a view on it. Origen has a view on it. And every early church father had a view all the way up and through the the Reformation and after. Many say it's not the Apostle Paul because of the stylistic differences in the writing. And I agree with that. If you look at the, the Apostle Paul's writing compared to the other letters, there are many stylistic differences as a matter of fact, all you have to do is read first couple chapters of, of, of the book of Ephesians and you see there are one big long run on sentence. It's like, when does this verse ever end? That's how Paul talked. That's how he wrote. Yet in Hebrews, it's the most precise Greek that we see in all of the New Testament. And so there is a difference there. However, the content of the book of Hebrews has Paul's name all over it. The knowledge of the Levitical priesthood, the knowledge of the Old Testament, the supremacy of Christ, Christ alone, the power of the blood of Christ. All of this stuff is just, says Paul, all over it. So in my opinion, I believe it was Paul that authored the book. And again, my opinion doesn't matter. (laughs) This is just my opinion. But I believe somebody else could have been writing it or dictating it, or Paul could have been dictating it to someone else. We see at the end of the book of Acts that he was in prison for two years, people coming and going, and he was preaching the kingdom of God to these people. And, and when, the way prison worked is that if you had people supporting you, you could have as many people coming in and out, bringing you meals. You could, and Paul did that. He had a gathering all the time. And so who knows who could have written this? Some people say Barnabas could have written it for him. Others say Titus, Timothy. It still remains a question mark. But I don't believe it's that important because the content of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is completely apostolic. And what that means is, is it's out of the mouths of those that were with Christ. And Paul being a latecomer is considered one that was with Christ for many other different reasons that we many different reasons that we won't get to. So when was this book written? We pretty much have that nailed down. It was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We know that because there's all this talk throughout the whole book about the temple and the sacrifices even though it's referring back to the old covenant tabernacle Um, it almost would seem impossible that if the temple wasn't there, that he wouldn't somehow mention that in this book because of all the points and arguments he was making against it. So we definitely know that it was before A.D. 70, and it was probably around A.D. 64 to A.D. 70 because that's when Christians were going through the most persecution. The emperor Nero had set fire purposely, one of the very first false flag operations, 
that we uh, can read about in history is Nero setting Rome on fire so that way he could rebuild it to, to his own liking. And he had a group there that he could easily blame it on, and that was Christians. Just before that, a few years earlier, Claudius had expelled all the Jews out of Rome for religious reasons, and they were being persecuted. So this letter to the Hebrews fits right in that time because these guys were not only getting off track and were misguided, but they were also going through a time of tribulation. And so that's where we get this purpose of this book is to exhort them not only to get them back on track, but also to exhort them to press on and press forward. The word exhortation comes from the Greek word paraklesis, which is very close to parakletos. Remember parakletos from John 14 is the Holy Spirit, the helper, the coming alongside one. Well, the paraklesis, the exhorter, the exhortation is almost like that, but it's a word of exhortation that could also have shadows and nuances of warning. And that's what this writer was doing. This writer was writing to the, this church in distress, and he's writing from a pastoral perspective. And this is, I say that because a lot of times we get caught up in the theology of Hebrews, and we, just, we have all of our preconceived post-Reformation ideas, and we read them into the book of Hebrews, and we start talking about, well, why is this guy talking about falling away? Christians can never fall away. We're, we're once saved, always saved. And why is this person talking about willful sin after hearing the knowledge of the truth and tasting of the Holy Spirit? How are we supposed to do this and do that? We're going to get to those chapters. But I can tell you right now, this was a pastor pleading with his people, giving them a warning, which is totally appropriate to do at this time of present reality that they were writing, that he was writing in of what's going on and where they were headed, which was off in the right direction. We know that these, these people were very well versed in the Old Testament. There's 35 direct quotations from the Old Testament so this guy wouldn't, uh, the author wouldn't have just wrote that if they weren't familiar with it. So they were probably educated in this aspect of theology. What was their main problem? They were compromising their faith in Jesus by mixing it with the old wine, so to speak, of the old covenant. They were mixing it with the old covenant. Now imagine, you know, you're, you're trying to unlearn all this stuff. You're, you're, a, you're a Jew from birth. You were raised up. You were circumcised. You were taught to follow the law. You went to Hebrew school. You sat in synagogues. And now the fulfillment of everything you heard is now in this man who they're telling me is God, which is a complete crazy irrational concept for a first century Jew. God can't become a man. That's absolutely insane. But he was. They were misreading the scriptures of old. So now what were they doing? They were trying to get out of that habit. I don't know about you, but I have habits in my life that I just can't shake sometimes. You know, no matter how much you try to uh, feed me ragu spaghetti sauce, I'm not going to eat it. I have the habit of eating homemade tomato sauce. And I don't even like calling it that. We used to call it gravy. So I, gotta, I have to unlearn that, right? And that's a simplistic 
analogy there, but you get the point. You get used to something because of your culture, and it's very hard to shake it off. And so these people were saying, well, rather than let's shake it off and be completely reliant on Christ alone, let's sort of mix some ragu in there, you know, and let's sort of have the best of both worlds. And that's what their mistake was, because that's where they started going off. And we see also that they had many fears of tribulation. We, we read about um, uh, this throughout the book, that their author is encouraging them to hold fast. In Hebrews 4.14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." So they were being tested of denying Christ. Fits right in with that time. Denying Christ to all those other friends that were still hanging out in the old covenant in the synagogues and saying, hey, we got to still do all this stuff too. Are you telling me you're not going to do this? Then you're cast out of the community. No, hold fast your confession. Same thing with the Romans. Bow down and confess Caesar as Lord. If you don't, I'm going to take your family, your wife, and your children. Hold fast your confession. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Hebrews 12, 12, 13. And he also tells them in, later in that same chapter, don't refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, we escape uh, those when we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. So he was saying, this is the word of God. Hold fast to that what you learned. We know in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted this would happen before the destruction of Jerusalem, that there would be fears and tribulations. He says in Matthew 24, 6, 10, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be frightened. These things have to take place. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes. But these are just the, merely the beginning of birth pangs. They're going to deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. And many will fall away. This is exactly what's happening in the book of Hebrews. People are going and they're falling away. So they have this encouragement, this exhortation but also this warning. Now, the primary exhortation, if we go chapter by chapter, is very, very theological because that's who their audience was. These were Jews that knew the Old Covenant, that were practicing the Old Covenant. They were mixing things together. So the author lays out and he starts with the basics. And this is one of those times where you have to go back to the basics. Now, I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but I know in, in your Christian life, you're going to have ups and you're going to have downs. You're going to have times where you feel like you're, you're walking on three feet in the air with the Holy Spirit just elevating you around where things are all going your way. You have other times where God is opening door after door, confirmation after confirmation. And then there's those times where you look up and you see the steel curtain over top of you. Heaven is being blocked by an, a, a foot of iron. No one is listening, you think. What is going on? You begin to compromise. You begin to fall away a little bit. You begin to dabble back into sin. 
And then you wake yourself up and then you constantly say, if you're like me, what do I do? Where do I go? Man, let me just pray to God. Let me do this. Well, I want to encourage you when it comes to that, when you need to get back to to the simplicity and purity of Christ, it's time to go back to the basics, to the very basics. We see that. I love watching football. You see it in sports. Some of the greatest QBs, they get out there and they throw interception after interception after interception. And you often say, why isn't the coach taking him out and putting the backup in? Or they should have never started him. Or they should have did that. What does the coach usually do? He doesn't pull that quarterback out. He gets him to start doing the fundamentals again. The quarterback may come out of halftime and, and do a few handoffs. Do a few screen passes. Maybe he'll do a little bit of a, you know, a little hitch or something there just to get him warmed up again. Get him back to the fundamentals. Get him back to the basic functionality of what he needs to do. And then he starts to begin to get confidence and make those plays. And that's what we have to do with Christ when we start to get off course. The first thing to do when you go back to the basics isn't read your Bible. That's not what I want you to do. It's not to just start coming back to church. It's not start to put your favorite Christian music on. All that stuff's good. But the first thing you need to do to get back to the basics is go to Jesus Christ. You need to go to him and have that conversation. You need to go to him and have that one-on-one. And you need to pour your heart out. See, that's the basic. The basic is Christ. And and you know what? You'll find that that is not only the basic, but it's the advanced as well. Because that's the key. Now, out of that communion with Christ, everything else falls into place as it relates to reading the word, praying, going to church, having fellowship. It's flowing out of the right thing. But so oftentimes we, we don't want to go to Christ because we want to get everything good first. You know, uh, I'm going to get my reading first, my praying done. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to tell, you know, Pat that I'm going to be in ministry and that I'm going to do this and do that. And you try all that stuff. And guess what? You're still backed in the same vicious circle. And I say to you, stop. Go back to the basics. And that's what this author does from the very first chapter. Chapter 1 and 2 is the very basic. Hey, listen, Hebrews, that God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, guess what? He's fully 100% embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. He used to talk to us through the, the prophets of old. He's even communicated with us through angels. But now he talks to us directly through his son. And that is the very, very first thing. He is over the angels, and therefore his revelation is more superior than that of what the angels provided. The revelation is superior of that what Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the minor prophets provided. It's Jesus himself. He goes to chapter 3, and he then takes the legs out of their other support that they always used to grab onto. And that's Moses. Moses was their main man. Nobody talks bad about Moses. Nobody can even be superior to Moses. 
Moses said somebody like him was going to come. And yes, we must listen to him, but we need to be able to see that this man is like Moses. He took us to, oh, wait a minute. He took us to the promised land. He didn't take us in the promised land, did he? No, he didn't. Moses wasn't allowed to enter. He was deficient. God said, you can go up on the mountain and look over and see it, but you will not enter in because you struck that rock. And of course, we know that rock was Christ. So Moses, being a man, was able to lead the people to the land of promise, but not able to lead them in like Jesus has done. So Jesus is that of superior to that of Moses as well. All right, well, what about what we got into the promised land? Because Moses laid his hand on Joshua and said, let my spirit be on him. And Joshua did a great job. He goes and he crosses over into the promised land. He takes the people of Israel through. He puts 12 stones on the ground to prove that he did do it. One for each tribe of Judah. I'm sorry, one for each tribe of Israel. And they go into the promised land. But guess what? Chapter four in Hebrews says, Joshua brought us in, but he could not provide what? The rest that God and Jesus only can provide. So we got Moses that brought us to, we got Joshua that brought us in, but neither of them were effective in being only what God can be. See, chapter five through seven is, is, is now their third big pillar where that was the priesthood. Because remember when we went through Nehemiah, the priesthood, the, the Levites were key, not only so that people could properly worship God and do the sacrifices, but also that God could properly be present with the people. Because otherwise, if there was no covering, if there was no temple worship, God's presence could not be there. He would be, we'd be like that dry leaf in front of that blast furnace, poof, because of his holiness. So they took out in chapter five to seven, he takes out the superiority of the priesthood. And then he talks about this guy called Melchizedek, which I can't wait to talk about him because he is a whole different order of a priesthood that Jesus is of the line. Melchizedek has no beginning and no end. He is like the son of God. And even Jesus is above and beyond Melchizedek. We see the supremacy of the new covenant implemented by the blood of Jesus in chapters 8 and 9. It's greater than the old covenant sacrifices because they could never take away sin. But yet the new and the old covenant are unified. But yet the new is a fulfillment of the old. And so that this, this writer is just going to every hobby horse and slaying it down. Nope, not this, not Moses, not Joshua, not the Levitical priests, not the old covenant, not that old blood. Nope, Jesus, the perfection of Jesus's body and blood gives us the way to draw near into the throne of grace. That's chapter 10. We can go in. Remember the Old Testament? Stay out. Get away from me. Get away. Get away. You, you may die. New Testament, the blood of Christ perfects that path. Come on in. The door is open. Are you sure? Yes, you could walk right in. Well, I forgot something. No problem. In and out. There's always grace for a time in need. That's what the blood of Christ does 
for them, and that's what it does for us. And that's needed because we are sinners. And we are not just sinners today. You weren't just a sinner last night. You're not going to be just a sinner next week. You're a sinner that is in constant need of a Savior. You are in constant need from the day you from the day that you were born to the day that you enter into glory. You need that covering of Christ's blood. You won't need it in the full blossom of the new age because you'll be made new. And Christ will be your breath, your light, as we read in the end. So the overall premise of the book, notice I didn't get to 11, 12, and 13, because those are more practical applications. But the first 10 chapters are all theological exhortation that Jesus is the ultimate superior revelation of Yahweh, superior to the angels, Moses, the earthly priests, The sacrifice is more superior than anything that could happen in the temple. Jesus is the new temple. He is the perfect high priest who offered his self a sacrifice once and for all. That all of those who draw near will be covered by that blood, that promise of the New Testament. Now, out of all these theological themes flow the practical themes. You see, we have to understand, don't get me wrong, doctrine is so incredibly important. Theology is so incredibly important. It's, It's doctrine that dictates your behavior. Your doctrine of God dictates your behavior, how you live out your Christianity. And so if you're, a, a, if you're a, a ragu, homemade sauce type of guy where you're mixing it together, you are really not, your, 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 your doctrine is off, therefore your behavior is off, right? So the, the, the main fund, foundation is off, then what flows out of it is going to be off. And I can't tell you that one of the biggest issues that we have as Christians in our modern day is that we mix Jesus with so many other things. And I'm not going to start going down the road and beating up all the false churches and prosperity gospel and all that stuff. No, I'm talking about within the realm of our own beliefs of Christianity. And the battle is in our heart. Because we're constantly creating things that we have to do to satisfy God in our flesh. Constantly. And as soon as we put these these little, you know, okay, well, I have to be here for, for God to accept me. And if I'm not the perfect individual, then you know what? God is, is not only going to be mad at me, he's going to cause bad things to happen. He's going to take away, you know, the raise that I'm expecting. If I do, do something bad, you know, he's going to cause me problem, my flat tire. That's why I have my flat tire, because I, I stumbled the other day. This is what happens, right? That's a God of our own creation. That's not the God of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the God of the Bible is trying to bang it into our heads from first page to the last that it's not based upon our obedience that he loves us. He loves us, therefore we want to obey him. And then he goes, now you're, now you're going to have ultimate joy. Now you're fulfilling the purpose that I made. for that The reason I made you was for you and I to love each other. And to have that relationship flourish based upon the foundation of love. 
And we were unable to do that until Christ came. So now Jesus came. He paid for the sin. He paid for all of our sins. Now we can be free to stumble in the grace of God and continue to walk free of guilt and condemnation. See, I'm not trying to tell you, because believe me, the letter of Hebrews is, is going to take us off for a little bit of a ride. It's going to scare us a little bit on some of this verbiage. So I'm not trying to say it's okay to sin if you're a sinner. It's fine. Jesus loves you. No, see, I'm assuming you are Christ's child that wants to obey him, that hates your sin. That's what I'm assuming. Now, we love our sin when we're tasting of it. You know, I shouldn't really be doing. Oh, I love this. Oh, it killed me. That's what sin's like. Gets into, into us and it, we think that it's good. We partake in it and then it creates terrible consequences in our life. And that's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because those terrible consequences are headed towards death. The spirit is building towards life. But our, our view of who Jesus is has to be clearly planted in the gospel. Clearly planted that he died for your sins and that no matter what you do, you can't please him in your flesh. You can only surrender to him. That's the concept of emptying yourself and dying to self. Dying to self isn't just flagellation, beating yourself up and killing the old man and all that. That's all hyperbole. What it really means is, is you need to trust God fully and trust the Holy Spirit to guide you and get you through this, through the good times and the bad. And that's what these people weren't doing. They were going back. They were going back to the old covenant. Because why? It eased their conscience. I like when I do something bad and then I go do something good. Oh, wow, I feel better. That's great. Yeah, I'm going to create this God. Yeah, the God that when I do something bad, I just do something good. And he's cool with that because after all, he's telling me to do good works. He's telling me that I should obey. And we take the scriptures out of context. This is all out of an expression of our love and surrender to Christ that we do good things, that we do things for God. Don't pat yourself on the back for just obeying. Just praise God. And when you stumble, praise God that his grace covers you and keep moving forward unto the Lord. And he will take it and he will use it. So out of all these themes, this is what the, the writer is trying to tell them. Get back to the supremacy of Christ. You must endure. You've endured hard times in the past. Endure these times that are coming and even more severe sufferings that are going to come in the future. And again, here's what we're going to see in, in Hebrews a lot. Don't fall away. See, this is that pastoral exhortation. Now, every time I talk about Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 7 to anyone my whole life, where it talks about the terrors of falling away from God, and in chapter 10, the warning of continued willful sin, Everyone says, well, wait a minute, I thought that we could never lose our salvation. Well, theologically, when Christ saves you, it's irretractable. Because you're saved by grace. Grace is not conditional. If it were, it wouldn't be grace. 
And the Holy Spirit is the key because the Holy Spirit takes you from the declaration of righteousness that God has put over your body, your mind, your soul, and your spirit. That day you're regenerate, you are declared righteous. But that doesn't mean, it's why I don't like once saved, always saved, because that implies that, oh, I'm declared righteous, so let's just twirl around and no matter what happens, I'm fine. When you say that, you're negating the Holy Spirit. Then why the Holy Spirit? See, because the Holy Spirit is in you and he's helping you work your salvation out, really, truly working it out through his full grace all the way until that day where you were openly justified before God in front of the assembly, in front of all, where Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So it's a declaration of what is the true now, but it's only true because of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. So the pastor doesn't, the pastor needs to exhort you. Have you confessed Christ as Savior? You said you have. Well, these Hebrews were going and taking the blood of Christ, and they were going, you know what? This isn't really good enough. I want the blood of goats and bulls too. And that was the big sin. So right now, if you came to me and said, I love Christ, but I'm also sacrificing animals too for the atonement of my sin, I would give you that same warning that you cannot mix that. He's basically saying, if you willfully sin, after you've accepted Christ's blood over you, that willful sin he's talking about is going and mixing that sacrifice with the old covenant. That old covenant blood and Jesus' blood, no, they don't mix. That is what disqualified them of falling away if they continued doing that. And so this is an exhortation to stay firm, stand firm, and don't allow your heart to become hardened. Because misguided, when you become misguided away from Christ, you will start to get a hardened heart. You'll start to get a calloused heart. It will become easier and easier for you not only to sin, but to justify your sin. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. Jesus died for me. I know I'm saved. I'm just going through a bad time. And then you're all the way over here going, well, what I, I really believe all this. And somebody else gives you some stuff and you get some stuff and then people fall away. So the believer and the community must be centered on Christ's blood alone. There's a bunch of other things I'd like to cover with you. There's a lot of notes here that I have. But we're going to save it because I think I've made my point. I think I've I've, I've told you this letter is about an exhortation to believers in crisis. Crisis of faith. Crisis from a theological perspective. And crisis of physical persecution. Think about that. Right now, you and I are hanging out in a nice, cozy church. We can go out to lunch if we want. We can go home and sleep. We can go watch football. We can hang out. We can fellowship. We can do pretty much whatever we want. Maybe some of you are going to work. You're choosing to do that. But imagine if uh, this situation was a little different and we weren't in a church building. We were in some basement of some apartment building hiding out because as soon as we walk out, if we walk out into groups, It may take us about two or three hours to exit this building because we have to do it slowly because people are watching. 
because we could get kidnapped, we could get persecuted. And I don't want to be grabbed by one of the Romans because if the Romans grab me, they're going to be ruthless. They're going to put, they're going to put lambskins on me and unleash the tigers and lions and bears. And that's what they were living under. Not exactly that, but that's just a picture. Now add into it the false teaching. Add into it the sacrifices and all the things they were doing wrong, theologically, everything. They were in distress. But we have, not only do we have a different situation physically, but we also have the, uh, a different situation theologically. We have the whole Bible in front of us. And so we should know better. But I have to say, we have a lot in common with this church as well. Because every one of us here needs to put our complete 100% life into the hands of not faith evangelical church and not going to church every Sunday and not how good I was this week. But we need to put our hands our face, our body, and everything squarely into the hands of Christ. And so I have a couple things that I want you to do as we prepare for this study, because next week we're going to jump in. This will be a little bit different than Nehemiah, because Nehemiah was a historical narrative. So we were taking big, giant chunks. I probably won't outlive the book of Hebrews teaching. We're going to be here for a while. Because I don't want to jump through. I don't want to give you overviews of these chapters. There's such rich theology and rich practical application that we're going to inch our way through. Sometimes we'll take a little bite off a little more. It depends. But there's not a lot of redundancy in this book like there was in Nehemiah. And so next week, we're going to start with chapter one. So I would, I would, I would say to you, number one, read chapter one. But I would exhort you, to read the whole entire book or listen to it. Now, I listened to the book on Audible, 1.5 speed, took me 25 minutes to get through the whole book. So you can do that every day. Do it on your way back and forth to work. Do it on the bike. Do it at the gym. Do it in your, when you're in the morning, whatever. Do it in your devotions. Get this book into your head. Get the flavor of it. Reading just one little bit is okay, but when you, when you can wrap your arms around the whole thing, it's going to come more alive to you. I want you to put yourself in the congregations, you, as we all are, but put yourself in their place. Listen to the letter as if you're hearing it read aloud like they did. Put yourself in the position of the pastor writing it. Loving and warning his flock. And what I would challenge you to do too is when you go through the book, reading it, take a little E and put it next to every exhortation that the writer gives. Put it next to every one. For instance, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. E. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus, exhortation, and it goes more. And there's probably about 25 or 26 through the whole book. Chapter 11 is all about faith. 
Again, the new covenant badge. It's no longer the old covenant that makes you an identity of a person of God. It's faith that gives you that new identity. And he goes through the whole hall of faith. And then chapter 12 and 13 are all full of exhortations. So spend some time in those. Mark that little E next to it. And like I said before, do not allow your theological, Calvinistic, Arminian, whatever you want to call it, preconceived notions interfere with the plain message and warning of this book. Because the writer of this had no idea who John Calvin was or Joseph Arminius or the Roman Catholic Church or the Reformation, post-Reformation, Synod of Dort or anything else. So let's try to take those things and leave them for later. Let's not read those things into this. Let's read it and get the pure, as, as the writer says, the pure milk or the pure meat of the word. And then let us go back and then we could see where those things fit in. Receive it as a pastoral exhortation. And most importantly, seriously consider your own salvation. What is your view of the supremacy of Christ over your life? How does the Christ deal with you? How does he fit into your worldview? How does he fit into your culture, regardless of where you're from? How does he fit into your lifestyle? Are you, de- are you decompartmentalizing your life? Like, this is where I'm going to be really Christian. This is where I'm going to sort of be a little bit of a Christian. And over here, I'm going to be the undercover Christian. You know, no. God wants us to be Christ, to be all our life. I don't want to even say like the most important thing in your life or the main thing or all that. He wants us to, he wants to be our life, our breath. Like breathing, that's what he wants Christ to be. So analyze that. But basically analyze your salvation. Where are you with Christ? Where are you at? Because this book will question it and it will make you think. And I say that as, as the writer urged, I urge you to bear with it. It's, he only wrote briefly 13 chapters, but bear with it. It's hard, but bear with it. So next week, chapter one, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We, we pray, Lord, that you would challenge us with it. We pray that you would uh, help us understand your will for our life through this. But most important, God, we pray that you would just make it more, Jesus Christ more glaring, the supremacy of Christ more important, if not everything to us, that we would see your grace, Lord, in Christ that we would walk humbly as your children, Lord. And Father, that you would take this book and and let it not only transform us individually, but also as a church. I pray that you use, uh, use it to move us towards building for your kingdom, for that city, Lord, whose foundations and maker are God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.